Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello to all my wonderful wine lovers and welcome back to the Finger Lakes series. This is part three and I'm bringing you an incredibly enthusiastic and energetic conversation with Richard Rainey who is from Forge Cellars. You are going to love this conversation. You are certainly going to feel like you are in the Finger Lakes with Richard describing what it's like entering this wine region, driving around it. You'll also find out that Richard has partnered up with an incredible winemaker from a pretty well-known French winery. I say no more, you must wait. We're going to talk about winemaking practices using wild yeasts. Have you ever wondered what is the difference between natural yeast and packaged yeast, commercial yeast? We're going to talk all about that and then sustainable farming, that approach but also being economically viable and different things you can do in the vineyard to make a difference. Cover crops. In fact, did you know you can use turnips? I was very, very impressed. And don't get me started about the ducks. I won't tell you what ducks. You've got to wait till later on in the episode. So welcome to Richard's interpretation of the Finger Lakes and his dry, dry Rieslings. Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm very excited to learn a little bit more about Seneca Lake and all about the Forge Cellar Wines. Are you ready? Well, I, I suppose so. What? A, what a, <laughs> why not? I'm here. You're here. Let's We're do stuck. This. We're stuck for the next hour. <laughs> Might as well talk rather than it being in silence. Okay, so Richard, you do have a background in wine. When did it start and where did it start? Um... Boy, that you know, it's an interesting story. So I grew up in Florida. Um, I find love it Florida. Ugh. Yeah, I, I got out. Not when just I was for Disney. 10. Not just for <laughs> Disney. I'm from that area, believe it or not. Uh, oh, lucky I was, you. I was born in Lakeland, but kind of grew up around Orlando, and uh-huh. actually still have family down there. But so uh, my great grandparents were immigrants from Hungary lived on ah, my grand- okay. grandparents' pop- property, and they lived in a little trailer there. And so my great-grandparents, uh, my my great-grandmother um, was a cook back in, in Hungary, so she she cooked amazing food. So I grew up eating just, just brilliant, you know, Eastern European food, and the joke was mm-hmm. that um, we always had a, a pig, you know. We had land, and we had horses and so forth, and we would raise a pig each year, and uh, she would come out with her bucket and my grandfather would say, here comes your great grandma. She's going to take everything left over, but the squeal from the <laughs> pig. So she would make blood sauces and, and uh, head on. cheese. And wait, wait, wait. Vegans, everybody tune out now. Come back in five minutes. Okay, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there was always vegetables involved, right? Well, um, not right now there isn't. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, I, I grew up eating these really great 
flavors. And then uh, they would go to the store, my great-grandfather, and he would buy a couple jugs of different wine and he would mix them together and he would do his own blend. Oh, wow. And I remember them having these juice cups always on the table drinking wine. And so, you know, I saw them drinking wine, but being in the South, we didn't really drink wine. But it was definitely, mm. I mean, it's a fond memory to see them mixing the wines and, of course, they're cooking. Then I moved uh, up north outside of Philadelphia. And uh, my mother, I, was, I had a single mom and, and we led a pretty uneventful life and she was working a lot and uh, we didn't have much money. And so uh, for me, and I, I loved food. And the easiest way to enjoy great food was to work at great restaurants. And mm -hmm. so I started working in the restaurants in Philadelphia. And the, the big turning moment was I went to work for a, a hotel called uh, the Ritz-Carlton. Oh, heard of and that. Heard of it. And <laughs> this was like the, this was the turning point for me because I got involved in the wine program there and they did some wine events. And I was, I was smitten because the wine business is this amazing intersection of people that sometimes don't, don't fit into uh, a category. They can be incredibly, you know, intelligent and well-schooled and, and have, you know, tons of experience in life, but they just sometimes are, they go a bit against the grain. And, and that was certainly myself. And I, I fell in love with agriculture and the history of wine and the people involved in wine and obviously the pleasure of wine. And my next step was to move to the Finger Lakes. I was I really didn't have the money to go to UC Davis. And I had a, a winemaker friend said, hey, you can work anyway, anywhere. So go somewhere and just make wine. So I moved up here. And uh, that was in the mid 90s, in fact. And that's when it all kind of began for me uh, was I got a job right up the street from where we are now. Oh, really? So so how was it entering into Finger Lakes? Because I've seen little videos and oh my God, the beauty, it's so green. I think that mm -hmm. is such a surprise. I didn't expect it to be so green. And these lakes are massive, they're vast. What was your opinion when you set foot in the Finger Lakes for the first time? It was, for me, it was otherworldly um, coming from... I mean, I always enjoyed the countryside, but here you have the rolling hills, you have these, you know, in the spring right now, in fact, on the way to work this morning, all the buds are starting to pop along the side of the road mm. in, in the, in the, we're going from, and it can happen quite quickly, right? It can go from this very gray and overcast and snowy environment. And then all of a sudden, like a flip of the switch, we had snow last week. And today, uh, it's going to be over 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So I always laugh. I think like Mother Nature, <laughs> she's, you know, in her kitchen or wherever, and she bumps into the light switch for the Finger Lakes and flips the switch and we have spring. <laughs> there, there's no like gradual warming up. It's like it, it, it shows up and it's here. And I think that's what's so amazing about the weather here is it just can happen so quickly and we have these very high highs and very low lows and it certainly keeps you on your toes but the countryside was was beautiful the hills the the geological fig, uh, features the lake you know the lake is is you know something like 40 miles long it's 620 feet deep a mile and a half wide so it's a massive massive body of water that has its own completely unique uh, personality uh, when I come to work in the morning, uh, I live about 12 miles away and I crest 
the hill, there's a there's a divide between where I live and the lake, and I drive mm-hmm. through the the forest to get here. And every day I crest the hill, and you never quite know what to expect on the other side. You can have such a rain, different you know temperature, a different perspective with the sun being out, or it can be cloudy. It's uh, it's its own truly its own uh, microclimate, macroclimate. Amazing. And actually, we touched on in the previous Finger Lakes episode uh, that Mm -hmm. there are 11 fingers uh, to the Finger Lakes. There are 11 Mm -hmm. lakes. They're actually quite, am I right in thinking they're quite spread out, though? How long does it take to get from the furthest, from the furthest west to the furthest east? How long would it take you to get across? Oh, that's, you know, that's interesting. They are, it is very spread out. When people Mm. come here, that's, you know, what I always recommend is pick a lake. And, and I Just think Seneca's, <laughs> Seneca's the easiest because you're smack dab in the middle. And yeah. for, 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 you know, uh, for visiting wineries, Seneca's kind of the center of the universe. And then from there, we kind of spread out. We go over to Cuyuca or we can go over to Cayuga. Uh, so you have Cuyuca, Cayuga, and Seneca. They're the three in terms of grape growing that we're the most concerned with because mm-hmm. they, they enable us to actually grow grapes. On the other lakes, uh, it's going to be a bit cold because the lakes are shallower and they don't yeah. have quite the energy uh, to protect the vines from the, the really tough winters that we have here. So okay. uh, to answer your question, oh, it would have to be by car a good hour and a half or so to traverse okay. that entire distance. Yeah. But if we were starting in Seneca... If we had to go southwest mm-hmm. to Kuka, how long that would that take roughly to get between those two? Oh, lines? to get over to Kuka probably takes me, if I'm concentrating, maybe 45 minutes, 40 minutes. <laughs> if you're concentrating. And if you're not, <laughs> after the crash and then getting back the car no, back and running. because, you yeah. know, you, you yeah. see the Amish little farm markets and, and, you know, and there's always flower stands. And then depending on the time of the season, there could be nice peaches. So I have to concentrate and actually not stop the car and go to a farm market. This sounds amazing. So I have to put my blinders on, you know? Okay, so now if you were concentrating the other way, so going east to Cayuga mm-hmm. Lake, how long would that take you? So uh, Cayuga uh, West side, from where I'm sitting right now, would probably take me just about 20 to 25 minutes. Okay, 2025, so that's much closer. Yep. Okay, everyone, there you go. 45 yeah. minutes to Kuka, 25 to yeah. Cayuga. Perfect. Well, see, I have to go down. I'm on the east side of Seneca, so I have to go down to the bottom and then kind of shoot up diagonal. Where I am oh, right okay. now, it's a straight line. So it, it, it adds a bit of time to get down to the bottom of the lake. And that's that's what we forget. You know, you get on one side of the lake and you want to go around. There's no ferries. So you've got to go to the top or to the bottom. Uh, that's a little bit inconvenient, but at least you have the beauty. Now, let's get to Forge Cellars. So you have a great relationship with a pretty well-known winemaker, or should I say the family and the winery he's from. So this is, wait, shall I try and... Louis Barol. No, that was rubbish. Ooh. Louis Barol. Barol. Anyway, Barol, oh everyone. God. Louis Barol. He was made to be a winemaker. So Louis Barol and you <laughs> go a long way back. Can you tell us about the winery that he comes from? People may sure. have heard of this winery and your relationship. Hey, they- you know, I, uh, this is my bit of advice for anybody before I tell you about him. If you're going to have a partner, try to find a rock star. It, it helps a lot. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. So 
my my in my old position, um, my I, I had a I've had a day job as well as running Forge up until uh, September of last year. Uh, I was in, in, in my old position, I was what they call a French buyer. So I was working for an importer distributor and I was spending, oh, 30, 45, up to 60 days a year in France mm. visiting producers and buying wine. And Louis was one of them. Uh, and the estate is called Chateau Saint Combe. And mm-hmm. this is located in uh, Gigondas. And yep. so um, I would go and, and visit sellers, taste wines, and do the purchasing uh, myself and another fella, a French guy, in fact. And Louis was one of my guys. And um, <laughs> oddly enough, they tried to get me to visit his estate many, many times in the late 90s, uh, 97, 98. And I, I just could never quite get over there. And everybody was telling me about this young, dynamic guy. And, and I tasted the wines. I said, oh, they're great wines. They're super good. But... Honestly, I was a bit full of myself, and I wouldn't go visit him. And then in the early 2000s, I finally got around to visiting him, and we got along famously. Um, he is, um, he's, I'm, what am I, 52 now, uh, and he's a year older than I. Mm-hmm. Young, dynamic uh, fella, uh, still playing rugby, I believe, and um, is, is, a, is a true artist. Plays the cello and, and, and rugby and is a winemaker and uh, full of energy. And what's interesting about Louis is this, um, it's as if he has 500 years of history, which is how long his family has been at the estate. It's as if he has 500 years of history wrapped up in his mind. Because sometimes you ask him questions, and I'm quite convinced it's his great-grandfather answering them. Um, Because he has such perspective, this broad perspective about life and about wine growing and history that it's really fascinating to talk with him. And um, we tasted very well together. We had very similar opinions about wine. And uh, while one thing led to another and we were having lunch in 2009 in in Gigandas and uh, he started asking me about these lakes where I lived. And that was the beginning. Uh, we, I explained to him about the, you know, the geology, the Devonian period, creating the the shale that we have here, and the glaciation, and the, the sand, sand, and the gravel, and the 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 loam, and all these varying soils that we have. And and his eyes kind of lit up, but I paid it no mind. I said, "Well, <laughs> if you ever come to the lakes, I'd be happy to show you around." But you know, this was when he just had received a whole bunch of press and he was really doing very, very well. And frankly, I never imagined he would call me and and ask for a visit. And uh, so I left it at that. And it was maybe six, eight weeks later, the phone rang and he said, hey, you know, I'm in I'm in the U.S. I want to come see these lakes. And I sure come on up, Louie. And uh, so he came up. And we started tasting and talking and driving around, and he found it all very, very interesting. But once again, I, I didn't, I didn't put a lot of, you know, weight in that because he was busy with his own estate and doing great things. And honestly, this is a very difficult place to make wine, and so uh, I kind of just put it aside. And he kept coming up and kept calling and kept coming up, and eventually, after a lot of tasting and a lot of talking, we were. 
uh, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I had a friend of mine, uh, Rudolf uh, Dupin, who owns a, a property in Lirac called uh, Chateau Montfaucon. And we were coming from New York City. It was about 11 o'clock at night. We had had a great dinner. And uh, I brought a bunch of wines with me. And um, we were in a, on a highway in New Jersey going to our hotel. And he turned to me and he said, you know, I want to do a project with you in the Finger Lakes. And I always make the joke that after I corrected the car and put it back on the highway, <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> I said hmm. okay. So I went back to the hotel and I called my wife and I said, you're not going to believe this, but Louis uh, wants to do a project together. And uh, we finally got around after uh, another year or so of, of investigating and talking, we finally got around to making our first vintage in 2011. Amazing. Now, I know you do do a few reds. You do a bit of Pinot Noir and Cabernet mm-hmm. Franc. That's correct, isn't it? Cabernet Franc as well. Correct. Yeah. But yeah. you focus entirely, really, on Riesling, but not just Riesling, bone dry Riesling. So why did you decide to do that? And especially as Louis is a Rhone Valley winemaker. Well, it's, it's Mediterranean there. I mean, yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. not going to get much Provence. Grenache growing there. He probably didn't have much choice. Um, but yeah, why Riesling and bone dry? Um, okay, so why Riesling? Well, it's the vehicle that does the best job here. Mm-hmm. So we often kind of just... I really, I mean, it's really funny. I, I forget that we work with Riesling sometimes because <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, we're, we're so focused on the sites at this point. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's kind of taken over my thinking. You know, the, the Riesling as a grape is an amazing vehicle like for, to show the land, to show terroir. And I'll do my best not to overuse that word terroir because it is, it's overused at times. But um, we, we, loved, we loved this as a vehicle to show this amazing place. Mm-hmm. And that vehicle, which happens to be an amazing grape, was, was here and it did a hell of a good job of relating the, the place uh, in the glass. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was the logical choice because it was here and it did a fantastic job. And then why bone dry? Why have you not left any residual sugar? Um, <laughs> well, I, I guess. <laughs> I'm waiting for the answer. Huh. <laughs> that's a loaded question, right? Because uh, uh. Um, we... Um, do you know US... the answer? <laughs> oh, I do. I do. I'm just choosing my words carefully. Um... Um, no, let's just say we we liked the... We like the wines for the table, so we like dry mm-hmm. white wines. Okay, French yep. guy, my, you don't know me, but I'm I'm a, I'm a lover of, of of food, and so we loved wines for the table, and and the kind of foods we eat here went very well with dry wines. So from the very beginning, we said we want wines for the table, and okay. for us that was that was dry. But there's also something else which I think is interesting because when you make dry riesling, you're kind of all in. You you don't get any, any exits. We have to create wines of texture, of richness, all in the absence of sugar. And that is an interesting proposition. Mm. And for us, it was the purity of the site, the purity of the place really shined through. Now, 
the you know the, the logical or the most common response is well do you have a problem with residual sugars in wines listen everybody can do whatever they want to do that's the beauty <laughs> of wine uh i don't pass judgment it's like if you want high levels of residual have at it for us what we've always really found interesting is to be very very dry less than four grams because we, number one we like the challenge but number two we like the, the the expression of the sites. For us, it really mm-hmm. shines through. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. I am accepting of that answer. No, actually, in the wine, <laughs> in the winery, you are very hands off, right? Is this you? What are you trying to make with these wines? Everything's low intervention, so, right? Yeah, I, I think I think um, the easiest way to sum it up is we do everything to do as little as possible. Mm. that means you choose great sites you pick very well you handle the grapes with a lot of respect in regards to pressing and settling you follow the fermentations very very carefully you make sure things are clean and healthy and if you do these things and if uh this is a i have a list i'm going to publish a book one day called louisisms there's a list (laughs) of louisisms You know, the idea is we always want to be anticipating where the wine is and where it's going. Mm. We never want to respond. So Louis says, um, it's a bit like driving a car at a high speed, but looking in the rear view mirror, you're eventually Mm. going to crash. So Mm -hmm. part of the discipline here has always been, okay, the wine's here. Where does it want to go? And what, you know, what do we need to do to make sure it doesn't go to a place we don't want it to go? And I think it's a, it's a principle that you probably find in most traditional high quality producers all over the world. You know, um, this, this, this being kind of at one with the wine and understanding that it's this living and breathing thing. And, and understanding what it needs, what it likes, what it doesn't like, so that ultimately you don't have to do anything to correct any any mistakes. Mm, okay, yeah, no. And actually, you also use uh, wild yeasts. It's all about spontaneous correct. fermentation. So why have you chosen that compared to commercial yeasts? Um, so commercial yeast certainly has its place, right? Um, mm. for, for certain projects, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the way we were making wine here, we started in 11, uh, 2011, made about three or 400 cases to see if we could do it and see if we could mm-hmm. make the wines in, in a way that we enjoyed. And, and we had some pretty good success. And then in 2012, we made maybe about 800 cases. So we started very, very small. And, um, and I think it was in 2012, we said, okay, we know we like what wild wild fermentations bring so let's start to layer them in and so we took very you know baby steps because Mm -hmm. we weren't sure about you know fermenting dry with wild yeast and it it took quite a while to really dial in the program but that being said um you know i I told you that i was in the cellar all day yesterday uh Mm -hmm. working on the 21s and in 21 uh we did some very very small commercial yeast experiments and so we out of 10 barrels let's say we would have nine that were natural and one that were yeast and why did we do that Mm. i i I love louis for this 
it's just to remind us to make sure what we're doing is correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it was a great experiment. And, you know, overwhelmingly, we preferred the spontaneous. Overwhelmingly. So but what, it was, what, what, yeah, it was well, a great record. Diff- and the difference is interesting. They're just more dynamic. They're more dynamic. Okay. Like, yeah, the, the, the nose, the, the aromatics, the mouthfeel, it's, it's just a more dynamic sensation. And, mm-hmm. I, but at the same time, and, and I'm, I'm always cognizant of, you know, people that pass lots of judgment in this business. And, and sometimes, you know, oh, it's this way or it's that way or it's got to be this. And I always say, listen, you've got to do what makes you happy because it's your art. It's your expression. So yeah. embrace. Uh, do what you want to do. So for us, uh, yesterday especially, we had all the yeast wines separate. And, you know, on some of them, I, I, I said, oh, I understand why somebody would do this. There's a purity of aromatics um, that is really fascinating. Like, I, I get it. With commercial? With commercial yeah, yeast? Yeah, with commercial yeast. Okay. Yeah. And, but it lacked the dynamic side that I really enjoy. But you could totally see why this would be super applicable if you were trying to have a very consistent expression of your your wine from year to year. Yeah, I guess from what I've picked up from speaking to winemakers is, yes, consistency. You're going to get that with commercial yeast. So it makes mm-hmm. life easier. Mm-hmm. You definitely will probably get cleaner flavors. So I think you said about the, the fruitiness. That's probably mm-hmm. going to come through more. But you don't have the energy. And I suppose wild yeasts allows for a wilder flavors to potentially come out. Would that be fair to I, say? I, I, I think it's fair to say. I think um, there there's just a lot more uh, complexity for sure for me, you know, uh, using spontaneous. Mm. But uh, mm. it, it has its own host of challenges, you know. I mean... Um, you've got to pay a lot of attention and you've got to do a lot of babysitting and, uh, and you know, it's, I don't know. One of the Rickisms I will say is I, <laughs> I often in the winery say nothing's for free, everything. There's a cost for everything. So what you gain on one side, you're going to pay on another at some point. Yeah. 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 And you I know. suppose with spontaneous fermentation and wild yeasts, typically, am I right? They're slower a lot of the time. And of course, you could run into a, a, a stuck fermentation. They're kind of the the two differences during fermentation, aren't they? Uh, you're you're right. You you have to pay a lot of attention to them because um, in in winter when things cool off, mm. they will slow down uh, often, and so our ferments would often uh, not finish until the spring. And that's, you know, for some people, oh my gosh, you're, you're biting your fingernails and, and you're pacing because, you know, once the wine's done fermenting, you know, you're kind of safe. And yeah. until that happens, you're not. So it's kind of nerve wracking in a lot of ways. I've come to enjoy that rhythm. I've come <laughs> to enjoy the, the birds, you know, the birds. Now I'm going to sound like a biodynamic producer, um, <laughs> but when you see the winter coming and everything slows down outside and the birds quit, you know, carrying on and the yeast do the same. 
They slow mm. down. And then you have this period around December through January and February, and the cellar's quiet, and there's a certain beauty to that. And then the first days of spring where the birds, you know, you've heard it, right? Where the birds just mm-hmm. go crazy yeah. and everybody's like, Yahoo, winter's over, let's party. <laughs> um, it's as if the, the yeast in, in the cellar go, okay, let's get this done. And they finish. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I love that. I find it, I find that uh, amazing. Now, of course, you know, you, you have to pay a lot of attention to, to the barrels and, and watch them. But uh, boy, that, that last little bit of fermentation is just is lovely because actually with commercial yeast you can do a fermentation in like it depends a few weeks whatever it depends on if you're doing white or red and here what you're telling me is it's taking months it can but then again you know there's no rules because we've had the the exact opposite happen where we've had spontaneous and they go really fast and then you're Mm. like Oh, what the hell? What, what was Wait a minute. So, you know, I don't know what the rule book is. I, I didn't get a copy of the rule book. Um, because <laughs> it's like parenting, I, right? Because <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, you know, and listen, I'm not an enologist. Um, I'm just a guy that is a wine guy. And so I do come at it from this, this kind of very, very simplistic perspective. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think somewhere that's also the joy is that, yeah. um, I can step back and, and watch this with uh, with kind of a brand new set of eyes. And, and I think that's a lot of fun. Absolutely. But I mean, ultimately, it's about listen, look and respect. And I suppose that's what you do out in the vineyards, don't you? Because you do farm sustainably and organically. This is also probably going to help you with your wild geese. So what are you doing in the vineyards? Um, uh, for me, I've made a whole bunch of mistakes. Um, <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> I mean, uh, I've planted and replanted at my our home farm here is only about fifteen acres, and um, mm-hmm. it's so it's pretty small. It's a research and development, uh, essentially research and development farm, where we've tried many different things, and um, uh, we've tried using you know uh, these biointensive sprays that are. I don't know, biofungicides that are made from um, Japanese knotweed or from uh, basilicus or, you know, these really nice things. Um, And and spraying, or I should say farming in the Finger Lakes, much like uh, I I relate it to Burgundy. We have a lot of the same pressures. But here, the XLR pricing is far lower than Burgundy. So to farm in Burgundy, you know, organically and, and, and or biodynamically, which, whichever you prefer or a hybrid model or whatever you want to do, there, there's a little bit more wiggle room. Uh, so what we try to do here is on, on my farm um, is try to develop a program that is taking bits and pieces from several different places. So for instance, like mm-hmm. s- say, you know, biodynamic, I use some of the sprays, but more importantly, uh, my compost program. But then we use some organic sprays in the vineyard. Now, I'm not opposed to a conventional spray if it's warranted. So what what we're trying to do is actually develop a, a sustainable approach, but also one that's economically viable for the region. And I think that is often not, you know, not talked about. So most people, you know, can't afford $75, $60 bottles. They want some great bottles between 20 and $30. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so we have to balance all of that. We have to have a crop. We have to have a consistent crop. We have to have a crop that is economically viable. But of course, at the same time, just by our nature, we want to keep improving. So what we do is we use the Bellows Vineyard as a way to try different things and learn and then scale them up with our grower partners. So that, that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And so uh, it's been fun because I make all the mistakes here. <laughs> and then hopefully we learn from them and and then you know we can we can uh pass them along to our friends so what are you doing i know that one of the things you're using you're using cedar trellis pots instead of a pressure treated pot that thought that was quite yeah. cool I'd never really heard of that yeah it's i gosh it was a cho- well it's kind of funny that <laughs> i had this this choice the guy said you know what kind of post do you want and i'm like well pressure treated every time i handled them i'd get splinters and and it would always just irritate my my hands Mm. and i said send me those cedar posts instead and somebody said you know if you're going to be organic one day or certified you have to use cedar posts so it actually worked out pretty well the the only bad thing about them is they're so damn brittle uh they love to break and uh, the pressure treated are, are much more durable. So once again, there's nothing free. So uh, we, we use the cedar post and it's been working out pretty well for the most part, except I have to replace a lot of them. <laughs> Keeps you busy. <laughs> and then of course, yes. throughout all the vines, you're using cover crops, aren't you as well? Yeah. So um, we, we try different cover crops. Um, we've planted, oh, um, what did I plant last year? Oh, it was, it was called a... Ray's crazy spring mix and it <laughs> okay. had a, yeah it, i love the name so it's uh it was an organic cover crop but it was it had some peas and grains a bit of clover uh turnips which are interesting turnips. because yeah they 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 drill down deep okay. into the soil mm-hmm. and they kind of help open up the soil because i have give a bit of oxygen clay. okay yeah totally totally and it's really interesting you go out into the vineyard and you pull these things up and they can be you know 8 10 12 inches long ah, they're amazing and then uh what else was in there rape seed rape seed is uh, mm-hmm. it cleanses the soil it's a clean they're yellow aren't they they look really beautiful mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> so it's it's a really pretty cover crop so we've been playing with the cover crops um and, you know, like the, you can have these parasitic nematodes, rapeseed's very good for that to help okay. prevent those. Um, and um, that's been that's been a lot of fun. We had some animals. I had uh, uh, Indian runner ducks and uh, we have a huge. Little ducks. Uh, fo- I love runner ducks. They're hysterical. <laughs> if you've okay. never seen them, Google them and watch them. They're Do they run black. more than normal ducks? They stand straight up and their little arms are standing out and they run around. They're hysterical. And so we had a a flock of these ducks and they just brought such joy and they're prolific layers. So we had amazing eggs. The downside is you have to pay a lot of attention to them because we have uh, a huge fox population. Ah. And uh, the fox, fox, they liked them uh, more than us, in fact. Because <laughs> they ate all of them. But we'll bring no. the ducks back, I think. We'll bring the ducks back next year. I'm, I'm confident we'll have the ducks. And I suppose then that also helps with the soils in a way. Because I know you're limiting the tractor use. So then you're not getting yeah. the compression. You've got the turnips going down, creating more air. And then the animals go around kind of moving the soil a little bit as well, don't they? But in a much more sensitive way. 
And then also yeah. eating away at some other kind of weeds some other and stuff. doing other stuff, things we don't want. And I think there's another component, which is when you go in the vineyard and you and you have the animals in the vineyard and you have the people in the vineyard that are watching the animal, everybody's happier. Mm. And and you feel it. I mean, you, you can't be in a bad mood when you go into the vineyards and you see these black ducks running around. <laughs> I, I don't mean, feel like I'm in a bad mood now, just thinking about it. I, I So I think there's a lot of stuff, you know, that we, we don't necessarily, it's not quantifiable, but we know it's it's right. And I think that's one of them. And um, in regards to the tractor use, I mean, I, I have a, uh, a producer from Alsace that I had immense respect for, Olivier Hombresh. And, uh, oh, just, cool. well, yeah, huh? mm-hmm. yeah, just one of the great guys. And... Um, this is years ago, sitting, talking over dinner, and he had just started using some uh, horses. And we had this discussion about, you know, the, the cost of a tractor over its life and the cost of a horse versus how much it accomplishes. And, and like, from an economical perspective, has anybody ever compared the two? And, and we had this, you know, long discussion, and he said, you know, um, tractors are just too heavy. And he's like, I would love to see tractors that were light, lighter. And that stuck in my head. So uh, being a, um, the, you know, the fella that I am, I, <laughs> last year I, I was mowing my vineyards with a lawn tractor. And oh. needless to say, my neighbors thought I was out of my mind. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was a wet year and I could drive my, I literally brought my tractor from my house uh-huh. And with the mower deck, and I put it all the way up as high as I could. But it was a wet year, so I could mow the grass. It was growing like stinking mad. You know, we had to <laughs> mow all the time because it, it became very tall, and oh, it was just horrible. So I'm out there on my stinking tractor like a goofball. <laughs> but I, I really thought a lot about this this idea of compaction more and more. And so this year, I, I'm purchasing another tractor that okay. is smaller. And Mm -hmm. its use is going to be for these kind of things when the vineyard is maybe a bit wet, but we want to get in there and we want to do a a light spray, maybe a preventative spray that doesn't need a big spray or a heavy duty. Maybe I can use this lighter implement for for more more task in the vineyard Mm. instead of using my big tractor. So we'll see if it works. Toy tractors. Love it. Toy tractors. Yeah. Toy tractors. Now, where would we be without me tasting some of your delicious wine? So what we're going to do is, I'm assuming you don't have a bottle with you of the the classique dry reason. Do you? uh, Which which vintage do you have there? I'm on 2020, the current, the brand new release. Oh, look at you. You must know know somebody. Do you know somebody? I do. I don't want to tell you who I know. I do know. I know you. Um, I, I worked. I pulled some strings, and I do have the current 2020 vintage, uh, which nice. is not here in the UK. Everybody, you can find. I think 2017 in the UK at the moment. Uh, Maybe from, the 19s uh, mm-hmm. or um, the. Well, I'm sorry. The 20s leave the states next Thursday for France. And then uh, they'll be available in Europe that you'll have the 20. So every, all, all of the older vintages should be gone. And then you'll be on to the 20s in the UK. So, so you know, everyone just needs to get excited. But, you know, I, I happen to got my hands on it. So this is, you know, this is your classic. So this is 
Riesling yeah. from lots of different vineyards, isn't it? Rather than a site yeah, selection. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. So we have, um, I don't know, in 2020, we made, um, in all, 14 mm-hmm. different bone dry Rieslings. Um, 13 of those were from individual sites or, uh, as we say, Ludi, small mm-hmm. sites. Now, what is Classique? Classique is at least one barrel from every site. And ah, okay. this is always our most important wine because it's a snapshot of the work we do here within this eight mile stretch that we focus on. Uh, it's a snapshot of the vintage. It's a snapshot of forage. And this has always been the, the wine that, um, well, not unlike Louis kind of Cote de Rhone, right? It's the wine that is the most available throughout the, the Europe and the U.S., Yep. But also for us, it's very important because it's the introduction to forage. So we've uh, we make it the same as all the other wines. It's exactly the same. Uh, the production, there's not a separate production or anything like that. So what you have is essentially just uh, a, a little bit of a whole bunch of different sites to give you a true expression. Oh, it, do you know, it is classic Riesling for me. It has such beautiful, like, lemon and orange zest going on and it has mm-hmm. almost this nice kind of a slight honey note and like even a ginger nut finish mm-hmm. um super super fresh you've got some lovely texture i'm assuming you do a little bit of lees aging or batonage with these wines sure uh yes we're all mm. we're texture junkies we these like, are very textural mm-hmm. we like we we love textured whites textured reds um, I love the ability of Riesling to have the aromatics of, of quince, of mm. apricot, of confiture, of, you know, uh, lemon and, and mandarin orange, like all these amazing aromas. But then to have the texture that maybe you find in Burgundy. Yeah. Where you have this round, sexy, enjoyable <laughs> in the mid palate for me, and then the finish of mineral and freshness and yeah. saltiness. Saltiness mm-hmm. is salinity is a key for us. Um, acid is just acid, but when you have this salinity, uh, it's really interesting. And so yeah. those combinations to, is what gets well. It's what gets us very excited. Because mm-hmm. it's it's unique to the it's unique to the Finger Lakes, it's unique to to this place is to have the ability to have this massive ripening where we pick in mid uh, mid October into November, ah, but okay. end up with twelve and a half degrees alcohol, and then on top of it have this level of extract and richness in the absence of sugar is crazy. It's mm. it's just it's fantastic. It is. It's so, so uh, do you know, what? I was just going to use the word vibrant and I'm looking on the back. Actually, I love what you've done on the back of the bottles. There is actually a very simple but easy tasting note. You've put mandarin orange, cardamom, vibrant. And it's certainly that very, very alive, very energetic. I get it's all about citrus and orange notes for me. So, yeah, the fact that you put mandarin totally comes out. 
and there is, I guess, on the palate, more grapefruity and yet yeah, salted grapefruit. <laughs> Not that I ever yeah. put salt on my grapefruit, but I'm, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I am getting it. You've nudged me in that direction, but I, I feel it that, and the salinity finishes, but it is, it's also saline slightly, but spicy. It's lovely. Yeah, it's um. So you know, the the mother rock here in the Finger Lakes is is this shale. Mm-hmm. And when this shale was cre- uh, created during the Devonian period, when this region was south of the equator, you also had shallow seas where you had salt deposits, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we still have active salt mines, active right now. Underneath mm. Seneca Lake is a salt mine that is processing sea salt, essentially, as we ah. speak. And there's one underneath Cayuga Lake. And up the road, Syracuse um, was called Salt City because all of the salt from the region flowed through Syracuse. And so I don't know if it's me and being overly romantic, but <laughs> I, but salt is it's a part of it's part mm. of the place here, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was with a journalist friend last year. And uh, during COVID, and he came up to visit, and he convinced me to open up all the Rieslings we've ever made. And at the end of the tasting, <laughs> he you said, didn't "You didn't mind." Know, I, I I didn't mind. He said, "You know, it's amazing because it's not just acid. You have this." And at the same time, we looked at each other and we said, "Salt. It's mm. cr- it's such an interesting component of the region that gives a freshness that's different than acid." Well, it's it's beautiful. Now, I did look on your website, and I believe all of those of you in America, lucky you, this is only $20. <laughs> um, so yay for you. Not so yay for us once you get it transported all the way across and all of our taxes, etc. But wow. um, this bottle in the UK is £31.50 for everybody. So, And I know that Noble Green Wines is selling the 2017 vintage. So go cool. across and, and go and pick up some of that because then the sooner we get through that, we'll be on to the 2020 <laughs> and you can try this You're one. Good. Yeah, You're good. I know, yeah. and, I know. Well, it's amazing. I get these uh, great notes uh, from people in England all the time. Like, hey, I'm having your 2017. And I'm, honestly, I'm like, lucky you because... Uh, Riesling uh, ages beautifully, so... Oh, uh, and this wine that you're having, do me a favor. You yeah. opened it today. Drink mm-hmm. it over the next four or five days and you're going to see in day That's going to be hard. <laughs> we should have sent more than, uh, more than three bottles. Um, watch the evolution. In day three and day four is when the wine comes alive. Okay. Do the experiment, okay. and you're gonna you're gonna be amazed at how they come alive. It's really it's quite fascinating. Love it. So the energy continues next week. Make sure you tune in. We're going to be talking more about their Ludi, also known as Climat, which is basically those small areas with very specific characteristics. We're going to be talking about them being featured in the Wine Spectator as one of the top 100 wines. Touching on some pretty horrendous vintages for Richard, and we will go way more in-depth on Seneca Lake. Now, to finish off I have a wine quote as always and one of my dear listeners Mark Rendell has sent me in a quote so guys do that for me that makes my life so much easier I don't actually have to look for a quote and this one is from Ernest Hemingway in his book A Farewell to Arms and the main character that was speaking about wine says wine is a grand thing it makes you forget 
all the bad. Well, certainly, I think that's valid for this conversation. I think Richard's done an incredible job of us forgetting all the bad. I imagine you are all ready to go out and find one of their dry Rieslings. And Mark, thank you for sending me that quote. So, everybody have an amazing week. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you've subscribed, you've liked the podcast, shared the podcast, written me a comment if you can on Apple Podcasts. And until next week, cheers to you.